Well, good morning. Good morning to everyone here. Good morning to everyone watching online. If you're online watching, you can't see this, but I think word got out and uh, the splash zone has been cleared. So there's wisdom in that. Um, Today we are going to continue in 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, PV has done a a wonderful job, Uh, last week especially I thought was just phenomenal, just leading us through the reality and the power uh, and the importance of Christ's resurrection, and how Paul writes that if, uh, if there is no resurrection, if Christ is not risen, then we are of all people most to be pitied, and uh, I hope, to, um, I hope to, to, to bring out even more so why that is and how that is. But to, to start with, I want to um, start with, with story, <laughs> um, because as, as I was thinking about resurrection and I was thinking about this, this passage, I was reminded of, um, of me as a child, and, and, and I, think, I think most children go through something similar and the more I've shared this story, the more people have come up to me, and, and I'm not sure all the time, but oftentimes when I do, someone will be like, yeah, I had the same thing when I was, when I was a kid. So if this was you, then tell me later, I guess. Um, but, you know, like kids, you know, kids, uh, kids are, 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 are funny. Um, every parent probably has had a time when their child is in those ages, you know, between five and adolescence, like five and ten, somewhere in there, you know, they're they're beyond the the baby infant toddler stage. They're 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 school aged. They're not quite old enough to handle con like 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 abstract concepts, um, and 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 you're woken up either in the middle of the night or just as you fall asleep uh, to a, a little knock 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 on your door. And you're like, what is it? You know, and you hear a little voice saying, you know, can I come in and sleep with you? Or, or I'm scared of something. And, um, and in the moment, you know, that there's no preciousness in that in the moment. You're just frustrated. You're tired. You're like, well, what is wrong with this child? Um, later on, hopefully, you, you know, you appreciate those moments. But for me, for me as a child, uh, when that time came, you know, it, it was unusual. And... Um, I wasn't afraid of, of, of uh, like, under my bed. I wasn't afraid of the closet or the dark. The thought that kept me awake at night, the thought that drove me to go knock on my parents' door in tears was, um, what if, like, if we're going to live forever in heaven, what if I get bored? Like, won't I run out of things to do if, if it's eternal, if there's no end, Sooner or later, I'm going to get bored, and then what? <laughs> and and for a little, I don't know how old I was, but for a little Jonathan, that was enough to keep me awake. And now that I'm working, uh, you guys may, may know I'm, I'm, I'm teaching now at, at uh, Lanier Christian. I, I work primarily with middle schoolers, and, and I, can, I can testify again that I think the thing that scares kids the most is being bored. You know, I was always looking for something to do. So, um, you know, my... My dad, in his gentle way, I've, I forgot what he told me. I, I don't know how he, he, uh, he eased my concerns about that, you know. Um, but in the process of, of trying to comfort me about, don't worry about it, it's fine, God has things for you to do, it's not nothing, um, he, he unlocked a new fear <laughs> for me. 
um, that I didn't even think about. And, and I, I don't envy him the, the task of explaining eternity and resurrection to a child, who, especially when you just want to go to sleep. Um, but, uh, but in the process of that conversation, my, my new fear was, what version of me gets to go to heaven? You know, because we hear this, 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 this doctrine, this teaching that, you know, when, when you die, your spirit goes to heaven uh, and gets to be with Jesus. And then I was like, is that, is that really me? Whatever version of me um, gets to go into paradise so my body gets left behind, but that's the version of me that I know. Like, that's the only version of me that I know. That's how I, I, I self-conceptualize. That's where my identity is wrapped up in. Um, would I even still be me if it's just my spirit going to heaven and my body gets left behind? And that was a whole new can of worms for my, my parents to, to wrestle with. Uh, I've forgotten what they said. Um, they may have just said, just go to bed now, we're in trouble. That's probably how that ended. And that was enough, I guess. But um, I didn't realize then, and I didn't have the words to articulate it then, that what I was wrestling with as a child um, is actually um, a, a, um, a heresy that has plagued the church for the last 2,000 years, for the better part of the last 2,000 years. Uh, it's the blasphemy of Gnosticism. Now, I didn't know that word as a kid. I had no idea. I was just... I had questions, and when I had a question that I didn't have an answer, I freaked out. I panicked, right? Um, but the, the, the doctrine of Gnosticism has been a thorn in the side of the church uh, from almost the very beginning. And we talked about Gnosticism a little bit earlier this year when we went through Colossians. And so I'm just going to, just in, in brief, as a brief reminder, one of the core tenets of Gnosticism, at least one of the branches of it, and if you, if you, if you do a deep dive into this, there's all kinds of things. And, and the, the, the doctrine of Gnosticism kind of branches out in all kinds of crazy directions. But one branch of Gnosticism, one of their core tenets, is that the material world as we know it and everything therein, including our physical bodies, anything that is comprised of physical matter, is inherently evil um, and, and must be rejected. And so the deep dive version of this is that the God who created in Genesis is actually a secondary divinity, and he's actually evil and cruel, um, and that Jesus came to rescue us from the physical world, to rescue us from the creator God, and to redeem and rescue ourselves back to the one supreme God um, and, uh, and leave behind everything physical that we know. And so... Um, a lot of the Gnostic teachings that Paul and the early church had to, had to battle against was this idea of rejecting completely and fully that which is physical. Um, one version says that, that Jesus was not actually fully human and fully God, that he was just a man, and that when he was baptized and the dove descended from heaven, that the spirit then took over him. And that for the next three years, God was essentially possessing a man, a human man. And that because the concept of God dying is, is so foreign to them, they said right before the crucifixion, then the spirit of God left him. And that poor guy was left to suffer the physical consequences. But in so doing, God provided a way to rescue our souls. Okay, And so this is one of the reasons why 
Like Paul is going to, to great lengths in this chapter and elsewhere in the New Testament to establish without any doubt to, um, that, that, the, that there is a resurrection and that the resurrection is a physical one, that we're not just going to be these disembodied um, ghosts or, or souls in heaven. And just as in Paul's time, just, just as it was dangerous in Paul's time and it was prevalent in Paul's time, this doctrine has continued throughout the centuries um, and it has found its way into the church, into, into well-intentioned, well-meaning churches. And I remember very vividly having a conversation with a pastor years ago. Um, and, and, and because, you know, none of us want to be remembered for our worst moments. So I'm, I don't know if he still believes this or not. But I was talking to a pastor, and, 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 uh, and we were talking about where Jesus talks about marriage in, in eternity. And he rightly says, you know, there is no giving away in marriage in eternity. There's, there's a different way that we're going to relate. Um, and, and so he was right about that. But in concluding that thought, he says, yeah, we're just all going to be souls in heaven. And, and in that, man, and, I, and I was still pretty new in ministry. I was still pretty young. And and I thought, well, he must be right. He's, he's, he's older than me. He knows more than me. But when he said that, it just kind of stuck with me. I was like, are we just going to be souls in heaven? And, and is that enough? And something about that left me very discontent. And I've heard other believers say things like, yeah, when, when we're in heaven, um, uh, we're not going to be recognizable as we are in, in, in our current bodies. We're, we're, we're going to look different. We're going to be different. We're going to do all these things. Um, I, I won't be able to recognize someone that I loved in this life because they're going to have a, a different form. They're going to have a spiritual form. And, and again, this feels us, I mean, I, I, I don't know about you guys. When I hear things like that, I get discouraged. It doesn't fill me with hope. But Scripture testifies, and as Paul wrote earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul himself says that in that day, in that time, we will know just as we are known. That, 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 that perfect knowledge of each other will be there. And to the old covenant believer, to the Old Testament follower of God, those who were faithful to God before the coming of the Messiah, their hope did not rest in the disembodied state of our souls in heaven. Before Jesus came, um, this, this line, you know, when, when you die, your soul goes to heaven to be with the Lord. That, that was never a part of their understanding. If you had said that to them, they would have looked at you very confusedly because that was not part of their doctrine or their hope. Their hope wasn't in a disembodied heavenly soul. Their hope was in a future resurrection. That's why uh, in, when, when, when Jesus goes uh, to Mary and Martha, when Lazarus has died, and you guys know the story, um, in John chapter 11, he, uh, he goes to Martha, or he goes to, to, to Mary, and, um, and he says, you know, do, do you believe that, that even now your brother can live? And what does she say? Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And, and, that, and, that, and that claim to faith, she encapsulates the Jewish hope that when we die, um, uh, God, like our, our souls do go to a place where God takes care of them. Um, sometimes in the Old Testament, it's called paradise or Abraham's bosom. Um, it's called all kinds of things. But that that's not the final state, that a future resurrection is coming 
when body and soul are reunited. And that was the hope that they looked forward to. So this is why the closing of Paul's letter here in 1 Corinthians was so important back then, why it's still important today. And you may think to yourselves, because I've thought this, I've wrestled with this so many times, and, and part of my process was, well, what's the big deal? What if, um, so what if it's just my soul and not my body that gets to be with Jesus? I'll still be in heaven. A version of me will still be conscious and aware of, of being in the presence of God. So, so who cares? What's, what's the big deal if it's just our soul or if it is, in fact, the physical body? But if you're sitting here today or watching online and you're thinking that you haven't thought it through all the way, the way Paul lays it out here. And so I'm just going to, in brief, uh, lay out the argument, and then we'll get deeper into it as we get in, in, into Scripture. But I'm going to give you the idea in a nutshell of why that's not okay. And then once you have that nutshell and you want to leave, you can leave. I hope you don't. I hope you stay for the rest. But, but here it is. If there is no physical resurrection, not just for Jesus, but for all of the saints, if there is no physical resurrection, that means that death wins. That means death has the final word over our lives. Even if it's just Jesus that gets to resurrect, and he beats death just for himself, but he's not able to beat death for his people. It means that God is not powerful enough to overcome the effects of sin, and we are still subject to the effects of sin, which is death. That's why Paul says, there is no resurrection. We are of all people most to be pitied, because we worship a half-powered God. And there's no hope in a half-powered God. And our faith is empty. And if the effect of sin is not defeated, then sin is not defeated, and we are still in our sins. There has to be a physical resurrection if God is who he says he is, who we believe him to be. If we go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Eden was God's very good, ideal version of creation. He says that after the seven days of creation, God looks on all of it, everything that he intended, everything that he designed, and he says, this is very good. God takes pleasure and glory in that moment from a physical creation with physical humans. And though that version of creation was broken by sin and death, if God truly has power over those forces of darkness, then we should rightly expect some version of Eden, of that creation, to eventually be restored. And that is what Paul is trying to say here. So he's going to make a connection to Adam in a couple of verses and show that from the, from the beginning, this is how it's been. So let's get into it. It was a long intro. Sorry. Um, we're going to start in verse 20. I think that's where, that's where we left off uh, last week. And you know, prior to that, again, Paul was, was, was laying out how, like, the importance of, of a risen Christ to our hope and that if there's, no resurrection of, 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 if there's no resurrection at all, then Christ is not risen and then we're hopeless and all that. Um, and he's already established, as, as PV pointed out, he's, he's called to the witness stand, the witnesses who saw Jesus uh, resurrected. So in Paul's mind, we've, we've been there, we've done that, we've established the truth of Christ's resurrection. He's not going to go through it again. He just presumes that we agree in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so Paul says, he is risen. All these things I'm warning you about that I'm saying were, were the most to be pitied, 
Um, we don't have to worry about that because the truth is, the reality is Jesus is risen. And if Jesus is risen, then he calls us into resurrection life with him. Uh, and um, he calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, um, some of you who have studied this, who have read your Old Testament, because you should, okay, there's a whole movement now in churches today trying to disconnect the Old Testament from the gospel. You can't do that. The Old Testament is crucial to understanding the need for a Savior, okay? Um, so study the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, we know that uh, as God's giving the Israelites the law, the laws of the land, the laws of how we relate to one another, he talks about this idea of first fruits. And in the Old Testament law, a willing Hebrew, and God makes it a point to say, if one is willing, so it's not forced upon you, a willing Hebrew was asked to bring the first fruits, literally the first fruit of their harvest, to the Lord and offer it to, to the Lord as an offering, as a faith offering. And it doesn't have to be fruit, right? We understand this. It could have been grain. It could have been vegetables. It could have been whatever crop you were growing or harvesting, and not just your crops. In the law, the firstborn of every animal was dedicated to the Lord and the firstborn of every family. God says, the firstborn belongs to me. And you can redeem your firstborn by bringing an offering, and that way they wouldn't you know, go serve in the tabernacle and later on the temple. Um, but God calls upon his people to offer the first fruits in every aspect of their lives back to the Lord before anything else. Okay, uh, And so this offering was made as an outward sign of faith that God would bless, that God would provide, that God would be faithful to his promises for the rest of the harvest season. It was an act of faith because the temptation would, would be, um, okay, here's the first harvest from my crop. Let me make sure that my family is fed first. Let me make sure that we have something to take to market to sell. Let me make sure that all of our needs are secure. And then once all that is in place, then whatever is left over, whatever we can afford to give to God, then we'll bring that to God. That's the temptation, right? To say, let's, let's take care of the here and now. And then once, once you know, everything's taken care of, then we'll bring to God. And so it's an act of faith to say, no, I'm going to give to God first without knowing whether or not I can afford to, without knowing what will happen next. And all kinds of things could happen next. There could have been a famine, and there often was famine in the land. Um, a, a plague of locusts could come and eat up all your crops. It could be a dry spell, and your crops would dry up. The river could flood over, and your crops would, would flood. Bandits could come and burn it all down. Any number of things could happen after that first fruit that would leave you at the mercy of who knows what uh, for the rest of the season. And so God calls his people to radical expression of faith to say, even though you don't know what's coming next, give me the first that your land produces um, and see what I do with that. And see that I don't bless you even more abundantly because of your faith. A modern equivalent would be if you are looking for a job and you're on a job hunt for a while and nothing's panning out and you're eating through your savings and you're eating through your, your, uh, what, what you have in, 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 like, as like backup income and, and uh, you finally get a job and you guys know how it works. You don't like work one day and get paid for that, right? 
By the way, side note, the Bible says do not hold uh, the day's wages. But anyways, that's a whole another conversation. Um, you got to work usually at least two weeks, if not longer, before you get a paycheck, right? So the modern equivalent would be what if you were looking for a job for weeks or months, you're eating through your, your stores, your, your savings, and then you finally get a job, working it for two weeks, and you get that first paycheck, and it's not just the 10% tithe, but you take the whole thing. This is the first fruits of, um, of our harvest, Lord, and I give it back to you. Where is our faith? Um, I'm not saying that, we, that God's calling us to do that. No, 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 don't, don't mishear me. I'm not saying if you're not doing that, you don't have enough faith. That's not it at all. I'm just trying to, to give us... A, a modern understanding of the, the, the gravity of sacrifice that God says, when you bring your first fruits, here's what it's going to look like. It was a radical act of faith. And so why all this? Why does Paul then invoke that? Well, he's saying by, by invoking Jesus as the first fruits, he's calling us to that same level of faith, to that same radical level of faith, to say, I get that you don't know what's coming next. Anything could happen next. You don't know, you really don't know because you haven't seen or experienced what happens after death. Um, There's no proof beyond uh, the resurrected Christ, which should be proof enough, but beyond that, there's no proof of of resurrection, Uh, but you're still called to radical faith and hope that it will happen anyway. And the good news here is you don't even have to be the one to make the offering. That's the difference. Jesus has offered himself himself. He is the first fruits. He's, he's, he's already made that sacrifice for us, and now it's up to us to follow through with that same faith. And so this is what Paul is trying to get his readers and us to see and to understand that, yes, uh, the resurrection takes faith, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. Amen? Isn't that what the Scripture says? There is proof for everything. If we had proof for everything, there'd be no need for faith, and there'd be no way to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And it's important at this point to state the obvious, um, just in case, I have to cover all the bases, uh, that by calling Jesus the first fruits of those risen from the grave, Paul very well could invite the objections of those who would be like, no, 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 wait a minute, Paul, wait a minute, wait a minute. I remember a story back in the Old Testament where the prophet Elijah raised a widow's son from the dead. Um, I'm pretty sure he was resurrected too. And Jesus himself did a little bit of uh, raising from the dead. Um, The people who were present and and were witnesses to Lazarus coming back from the grave, many of them were still alive when Paul wrote this letter. Paul himself, um, uh, when he was preaching and that kid fell out of the window and died, right? And Paul goes out. Preachers love to make jokes about that. I'll spare you guys. I'll let you guys make the joke yourself. But uh, Paul himself goes and, and you know, brings him back to life by the power of the Spirit. And so people would say, what do you mean Jesus is the first? Um, others have been brought back to life before Jesus, but here's the difference, right? And again, I know I'm stating the obvious, but it needs to be said that each of those and everyone like them, they weren't resurrected to new life. They were resurrected to their old lives. They were resurrected to their old bodies, and they were resurrected to their fate to die again physically. Each of those people, every single one of them, experienced physical death again. 
Jesus is the, truly the first of his kind, truly the first to be resurrected to new life, resurrected in his resurrected body, never to experience physical death again. And so, um, not coincidentally, by the way, this is, again, just a little aside. Here's a little bit of uh, trivia ammunition for you the next time you have Bible trivia night, because I know you guys do that all the time. Um, the day that Jesus resurrected from the tomb would have been the first day of the celebration of first fruits and the Jewish calendar. This comes right after Passover. And so on the day when, as, as a nation, the Jews are celebrating first fruits, Jesus is the first fruit uh, resurrected from the grave. There you go. Tuck it away for later. It'll come in handy, I'm sure. Okay, let's move on. Verse 21. For since by man came death, by man, talking about Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. So, but the first man's Adam, second man is Jesus. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so here we have the, what I'm calling the Adamic connection. And we see how physical resurrection always has been a cornerstone in God's plan for redeeming creation and undoing the sin of the garden. And here's what we need to remember about this. And I know I said this already earlier, but it bears restating that sin is not the only enemy of humanity. Okay? Sin has given birth to death. That is what Paul writes. And sin and death are inseparable. Um, and so together, sin and death have become this terrible two-headed scourge of God's good creation. What at one time gave God immense pleasure and glory and to the point where he said, this is very good. Now all of that is being ravaged and, 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 and run, run havoc with by sin and death. And sin separates us spiritually from God, and we know that death separates us physically from, from God's creation, from what God intended to be good creation. And so both of them have to be addressed. It does us no good for just one of those to be defeated. Um, for God to defeat just one of the enemies, for if he just defeated sin and not death, and he leaves death unaccounted for, he leaves the job halfway done. But praise God that he is not the God of partial solutions. Praise God that he is not a God who says, well, I fixed the sin problem. Um, I got half of it done. Um, and, and, but this death thing is just too much. I don't know what we're going to do about this. I'll, I'll just save their souls and, and provide an exit strategy for their souls. At least their souls will be saved. I, I got sin death is just going to be, they're just going to have to deal with that. You know, they're on their own with death, right? Praise God that he's not that God who's willing to just settle for a partial solution. No, but by his death and sacrifice on the cross, he does indeed defeat sin. And by his resurrection from the grave, he does indeed defeat death. And it's that one-two punch, right? That first swing takes out death. Uh, no, the first swing takes out sin, the second swing takes out death. And so we can rightly say, along with Paul, and I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because Paul quotes, uh, quotes from, from earlier in Scripture beautifully. He says in, uh, chapter, in the same chapter, the end of verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? 
Um, the ESV translates this next line more effectively. Then the, the New King James says, O Hades, where is your victory? But in, in, in the Greek, it's the same word. It should say, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? Because the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has defeated sin and death both, and there is no more power in it. There is no more sting of sin to plague mankind. So for clarity's sake, I'll say it again. If Jesus only defeated sin, but death still remains unaccounted for, we are of all humanity most to be pitied because our God would be nothing but a half-powered sham and unable to make good on his promises, unable to make good on our hope, unable to do anything about the consequences of our sin. So bodily resurrection, physical bodily resurrection is key to your faith. Verses 23, verse 23. But each one in his own order. So maybe you're hearing this, and like me, you hear Paul's victory proclamation, you get all amped up, and like, yes, this is great, let's do it. Uh, physical resurrection is awesome, let's go for that. And, you know, when, when, when do we get it, right? Um, and then Paul's going to kind of slow us down and say, but there is an order to this. God, in his timing and his economy, he has set a divinely appointed sequence of events that must take place first. So he says, but each one in its own order, Christ the first fruits, so first Jesus, afterward those who are Christ at his coming when he returns. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will, that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under his feet, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is expected. And that means that um, we eagerly expect and await Jesus to come back and finish the job. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be, be subject to him, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Um, the wording there can be a little confusing, um, but the idea that Paul is laying out is there's this beautiful um, transpiring of things that will occur where Jesus goes first, and it's appropriate that Jesus goes first because last I checked, you and I can't defeat death, right? Um, it's like when we're kids and you're, you know, for whatever reason, you got to walk down a long, dark, scary hallway and, and you're all kind of huddled together and say, who's going to go first? Well, you send the biggest one first, right? Because whatever happens, hopefully they can handle it. And if they can't, we can all run away, right? Um, and so Jesus goes first because he can handle it. He's the only one who can. So Jesus has to be the first fruits. And then after that, those who are his at his coming, when he comes, he brings not just rescue, he brings that awaited promise of resurrection, and then he brings victory. He puts all things under his feet. And Paul is quoting both from Psalm chapter 8 and referencing Genesis 3 when in the garden at the curse, God says to the serpent, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Um, all things will be under his feet. So when he returns, all spiritual forces of darkness, all sinful nations of humanity, anything and everything that sets itself up against the glory of God, um, God will bring all of those things under his feet. And it's not until that happens 
that he can purify his kingdom, purge it of all rebellion and sin and death, and then offer the kingdom back to his father as a gift. And so that is what Paul is saying here. He says, all these things have to happen first. You're eager for resurrection. Good, you should be. Paul is also eager for resurrection. But he says, but these things have to happen first, right? And so if you're hearing that and you think, okay, great, uh, let's get this train going. What are we waiting for? Why hasn't Jesus come back and done that already? Um, I think that to myself a lot. And so I'm going to share a verse with you guys that I've shared before. And I share it with myself a lot because God shares it with me every time I grow impatient. We have to remember 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so as I grew impatient for resurrection, okay, I can't be resurrected until Jesus comes and defeats everything. Okay, make that happen now, Lord. Um, God reminds me it's, it's his long suffering that holds him back, not willing that anyone should perish. He wants to give everyone as much time as possible to repent, to receive that resurrection. And so I believe a day will come. I believe scripture teaches that a day will come when God's long-suffering patience will, will finally find completion and every soul that he knows will accept him, has accepted him. And at that time, I believe the testimony of scripture is that God will make good on his covenant promise of his return and bring with him life and victory to the fullest. This next section, starting in verse 29, Paul's going to um, engage in some rhetoric. He asks three rhetorical questions the second two are pretty easy for us to kind of to understand, to discern. The first one is a little tricky. So let's, let's, let's read it. He says, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul says, again, the, the second two there, we can get those out of the way first because they make sense. Paul's like, if, if there's no resurrection, then why do we go through all this? Paul's like, I've been, I, I have death threats daily. People are constantly trying to kill me. You think I want that if there's no hope for resurrection? Um, I'm reminded of in the book of Acts when there's a group of Jews who made a pact to not eat or drink until Paul died. And we don't know what happened to them because uh, Paul clearly did not die then. <laughs> he went on for several more years. We have to assume at some point they're like, ah, let's forget it. Let's go eat. You know, um, I don't think they starved to death. But Paul is constantly under death threat. And then he, in, in, in Ephesus, we know that, 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 that the people rioted and they mobbed him, uh, trying to get him arrested and killed. And he says, I've been at the mercy of, he calls them animals. He's not talking about like animals in the arena or the Colosseum. He's saying people are acting like animals trying to get me. And if there's no resurrection, why go through any of that? It's not worth it. I might as well eat and drink and just, you know, wait for death. Um, the first Rhetorical question is a little more difficult. He says, uh, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? This whole idea and doctrine of baptism for the dead has caused um, Bible scholars uh, all kinds of headaches. And so many options have been put out there for what Paul could be talking about. Uh, at the end of the day, I think we have to conclude that we, we can't know for sure 
what he's referring to. I'm going to give us a couple of options that it could be. Um, but we can't get tripped up on this, on this question because no matter what Paul is referring to, it does not change his ultimate point, right? Um, so it could be, and I think the most conservative and realistic option is that Paul is referring to believers who would be baptized, who, who would go under baptism um, on behalf of fellow Christians who were killed or martyred before they had a chance to be baptized. And it was more symbolic, it was more of, again, the same way baptism is for us. Baptism doesn't save us. It's, 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 it's a symbol, it's a testimony of what God has done. So um, the most traditional, probably realistic option is he's talking about, you know, some of you are being baptized just, just as a testimony to the faith of those who have already died. Um, but if they're not going to be resurrected, what's the point? They're dead. They're going to stay dead. So your baptism, symbolic or not, Profits nothing. Um, another possibility that's been put out there is that there, there were pagan baptism rites. Baptism was not exclusive to the church. Uh, pagans would baptize themselves in all kinds of ways and for different reasons, and um, we would not call that you know, right or biblical. And Paul is not calling it right or biblical, but it could be that what he's saying is if even godless, superstitious pagans look forward to something after life to some kind of resurrection, even though they're wrong, how much more should we as believers embrace the idea of physical resurrection? Uh, that's possible. Uh, the Mormons have really latched on to this passage, and to this day, they continue to have uh, baptism rites for those who have already died. So um, all kinds of possibilities. I am content um, to, to see Paul's main point and to wait for eternity to ask Paul what he meant by that. I'm sure he's getting tired of answering that question, but that's his fault, right? So he's going to deal with it. Um, so maybe one day in eternity, I'll be like, so Paul, what was really going on there? We don't really know. Anyways, um, so moving on. So in verse, or actually, I'm sorry, I want to go ahead and skip. Um, I want to jump down, and we're going to jump down several verses because time's getting away from us. And, and we are going to backtrack through some of these that we're skipping, but I really want to make sure that we land on verse 50, um, and then if we have time, go back for the rest, because um, verse 50, can seem, it can seem like Paul is contradicting everything he's been writing in this chapter, and with one verse, unravel this whole intricate, beautiful argument he's laying out for a physical resurrection. So, uh, in verse 50, it says, uh, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, Paul says. And many have taken Paul's words to mean that physical bodies, not only can physical bodies not contain um, an eternal holy presence, but they can't even exist in the eternal holy presence of God in the kingdom. So, um, some have, so, so, so some have based the whole doctrine of, of that we're just souls in heaven on that verse to say, well, Paul himself wrote, you know, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So that means that whatever we are in the kingdom, it's not physical. 
It's not flesh and blood. But wouldn't that be a complete reversal of everything Paul has been writing in this very chapter? Why would he, why would he say that? Why would he mean that after everything he's been... This is one of Paul's longest chapters. It's almost 60 verses. Um, why would he undo everything that he's been building up to um, and say, oh, never mind, uh, physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom. So no, uh, we cannot take one verse out of context and form a whole doctrine out of it. We do well to read it in context, and that's what we're going to do. So if we look back at verses 39 and 40, Paul says, all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds, so Paul, Paul's saying not all physical forms are the same, and he makes a, a clear distinction between people and the animal kingdom. He's, he's basically saying you're physical and animals are physical, but we understand that there's a difference in intent and purpose in both of those physical forms. From all the way back in Genesis, only humanity is made in the image of God. The animals, the fish, the birds, they're not made in the image of God. Both have physical bodies, but we refer to one physical body in these terms because we understand the divine intent there, and we refer to the physical bodies of the animals in another way. He says there are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. So he says in the same way that you and animals both have physical bodies, but you have different intent and purpose, so our celestial or our heavenly bodies um, are different from our terrestrial, our earthly bodies. Um, they're both physical, but they have different intents and purposes. Our, ter- our, our, our heavenly body will be designed and created and molded in the perfect way, in such a way, so as to be fit for eternal glory and eternal living, whereas our earthly bodies clearly are not, as anyone over the age of 30 can attest to, right? Um, <clears throat> and then look also at verses 44 through 49. Paul says, after talking about, after comparing the body to a seed, you plant a seed, and the form of that seed, the physical form of that seed essentially dies. It has to be opened up. It has to be, you know, disemboweled in some way. Uh, And the physical bearing of that physical seed gives birth to something different that's still physical, but different. So Paul's using that comparison. He says, um, about us, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Some have latched on to this first also to say that our natural bodies means physical and the spiritual body means disembodied, like, you know, transparent or whatever we think of as a ghost or a soul. That's what they interpret it as. But that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying that the body that is sown, the body that is buried, is governed by natural impulses, is governed by natural instincts. Paul says over and over again in his other epistles, he talks about the old man, the natural man that's given over to sin, and it is raised a spiritual body, a physical body that is now governed by the Holy Spirit, that is governed by spiritual desires. Um, and so he's not talking about what constitutes the body. He's talking about what the body is governed by. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. Again, Jesus is not spirit um, in the sense that he is some transparent ghost. He is spirit in the sense that his body is is now made up of spiritual components. He's no longer made of dirt and dust. He's made of heavenly matter, whatever that is. 
I can't tell you what it is because we don't know. It's going to be glorious, though. We know that. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. So we know what we're made of now. We know we're just dirt. But what we will be made of then uh, is still a mystery, but we know it will be be real. It will be physical. It will be whatever Jesus is. Um, He will share that with us. We will shed the physical form of Adam, the dust, and take on the physical form of Christ, that which is made of heavenly material. So what Paul means in verse 50, when he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, is that the current flesh, flesh and blood, is perishable, incorruptible, and cannot exist in the perfect holiness of God's kingdom. But our eternal flesh will be flesh and spirit, and it will be imperishable and incorruptible, and will be perfectly suited for eternal holiness, just as is the body of Christ. The worship team can come up. Uh, I know that that today's passage, as we've gone through it, a lot of it can sound repetitive, uh, a lot of it can sound like, okay, we've, we've been there. We get it. You know, Paul keeps hammering it over and over again. Uh, but as we saw in the beginning of the sermon, guys, um, the enemy is, is still at work, spreading deception, spreading lies. Uh, heresy is still a thing. Um, even though we don't call it as such, Gnosticism in its core element, is still invading the church today. And when we really examine what that way of thinking leads to, that there's a preservation of the soul, but utter destruction of the body, when we examine what the logical conclusion of that way of thinking is, we find nothing but hopelessness and empty faith. So by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul was worth writing one of his most extensive and passionate passages about And we do well to listen to him. We do well to heed his warning today. And so God invites us to share in so much more than simply escaping earth. God has so much more for us than just, hey, here's here's the fire escape so you can leave your bodies behind and your souls can escape to heaven. God has so much more for us than just that. He plans to bring things back the way they were in the garden the way he always intended, the way that brought him immense glory and pleasure and moved him to call it very good, and we shouldn't hope for anything less. So let's pray. Lord, again, your your word is clear. Lord, you have preserved it as such that you have done great things and you continue to do great things. Father, we... We sometimes don't think enough. We don't meditate enough on the power of the resurrection. Father, we continue to chase dead things in this life at the expense of eternal glory. Father, would you impress upon us resurrected living today and that our hope is more abundant and beautiful than than we could ever possibly imagine. Father, would you 
keep us from settling for anything less than, than what you have. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you've done so much for us through Jesus, that you didn't just take care of our sin. Lord, you invited us into something amazing. Uh, would you fill us with joy, fill us with perspective, with eternal perspective, that the things of this earth wouldn't drag us down and hold us back uh, and cause us to stumble, cause us to, to look back at what we're leaving behind. Lord, none of that matters. Lead us in sacrificing our pride and our comfort and our agendas and our wills. Lord, all those things, would you, uh, would you as we took communion, communion today, would you remind us that we, we have died to those things. And we now live in resurrection, awaiting your return and your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.